you can go to John 3, I'd invite you to, to open your Bibles. Um, we're going to keep looking at this idea that we started off with last week, this idea of God's desire to change us, to make us different. And um, so if you would, while you're turning, let's just uh, let's open this morning a word of prayer, and let's just beg God to do a work in our life. Father, thank you for Brad and Amber and the kids, and thank you for writing them into your story on a little island in the middle of nowhere. Thank you for writing us into your story here in Simi Valley, California, God, that you chose to put us here for a purpose, for a reason. And God, I pray today that through your word, that you would open our eyes in a real way to what it is you have for us here. God, I pray that people here right now that maybe aren't sure, that don't know you, that <clears throat> maybe are confused, whatever it might be, that your spirit right now would be powerful, that, Father, you would speak through me, that you would open ears and hearts, and that, God, we'd be different because of what we, we talked about today from your word. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. All right, well, those of you that are, that are new here, welcome. Um, good to have you. I know I've met a few different people that are, are new here this morning. Um, we're in the book of John, and, and one of the things that we're trying really hard to do is to get this accurate picture of Jesus. Um, the other day I was out and I was interacting with a guy and the thing he said to me was, he goes, you know what? He goes, I'm kind of digging on this whole who Jesus is, but he goes, I meet too many Christians that I don't like. And I think if we're honest with each other, we're always hoping that who unbelievers run into are those Christians that exemplify Jesus versus those Christians that, that maybe don't exemplify Jesus or maybe people that claim to be believers that really aren't. And so what we're going to try, we're trying to do is through the book of John, we're trying to get to this picture of him, of who he is. And, and I think it's important for us to reconnect to this idea that what John is doing when he's writing this is that he wants us to have an accurate picture of Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus and savor Jesus. And, and absolutely, as we, after we catch a glimpse of him, his whole goal is, is that then we as followers of Jesus, we would have life. It's the thing I always talk about that concerns me about Christians. If anybody on this planet should have life, it's us. We should be the most excited people because we know that in the end, Jesus wins. He comes back. Everything is made right. He reigns on his throne forever. And so in other words, if we should of anybody become these people that get lost in this world and become almost desperate and poopy, shame on us. That's what the Bible is about, that Jesus Christ said, I came that they might have life and have life to the full. Now, that doesn't mean on this other side of it that he's trying to swing us off into this awkward health and wealth prosperity gospel where somehow he wants to make us happy as the eternal Santa Claus. Oh, no. He wants instead for us to be changed and made more to look like Jesus than we were when we first came to know him. And so that's why at the core of it, back in John 20, he's going to lay out this statement is, is that what he wants is that he's written these things so that we might believe Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in his name. That's the great aim. As we, as we read through the book of John, it should be this worship service of getting a clear and clear picture of Jesus that at the more we understand it, the more we see the worth of Christ and we get to thrill at who he is, we should begin to have more and more life. We should become a group of people that become thrilled at being these followers of Jesus Christ. And if you're someone here that doesn't know Jesus, my hope is, is that you will see Jesus maybe for the first time and God will do a work in you. Last week, I got to 
sit back and talk to two or three people, and it's amazing. One lady in particular, we're sitting there talking, and all of a sudden, she just started to cry, and she goes, I get it. And you got to watch her suddenly go from death into that moment where it clicked, and she went, I get it. See, that's what we're about. That's what this whole thing is. It's about us getting a glimpse and to capture that reality of Jesus. And not just for her that first time. Jesus wants it for our whole life until he comes back. And then let me tell you something. Heaven is going to be full of life. See, that's who we are. We're a different people. We're not about being somber and downhearted. Now, there is a place to mourn within us as Christians. In other words, we're not these weird, awkward, bouncy, happy people all the time. But even in our mourning, we trust God. We see him, and he's beautiful, and he frames our sadness. And so that's what we're trying to do with this. If you look at John 6, Jesus said, I came that they might have life. And even in John 6, where finally... Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're going to go away? And he says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. There's nowhere we can go. And so that's where we're at this morning. And we looked at specifically John 3, 1 through uh, 21 last week. And this week, we're going to kind of carry over from John 3, 19 through 21. We kinda, that's where we fall, fell off last week. But the whole point is, about in John 3, 19 through 21, is the moment that Jesus Christ hit the dirt, he was life to this world. He was light. He came in and he shone into this world that was falling apart. And the reality of the fallenness in which we live in, he says, is that even though we see it all around us, the reality of who we are is we've rejected the light, is what he talks about. Humans have rejected him because they know, he says, that to come into that light is a painful process. That if we're going to deal with this Jesus for who he is, we have a tendency to be self-sufficient and rely upon myself or, or, or try to do a power grab and put myself around powerful people or, or whatever it might be. And to come in front of that holy Jesus, is going to, I'm going to have to realize I am insufficient and only he is sufficient. And so he said, that's why people don't come to me. And Nicodemus, if you remember right, this old man that was the teacher of teachers, the head of probably the Sanhedrin, this group of Pharisees, he was this old man coming to Jesus in a respectful way and just saying, how do people change? He was desperate. He was trying to be involved in this change process that was happening. Instead, what Jesus does is he takes Nicodemus and turns his world upside down and says, Nicodemus, you can't change people. He talked about this idea that literally for us to to change, we can't rely upon these false hope and this false way in which people do things. He said the only way change will ever happen is if they are born again, period. They have to repent. They have to see God for as beautiful as he is. And until that happens, Nicodemus, we will never see change. And I started thinking about it this week, the way in which people try to change but can't. I came up with four little thoughts about it. A lot of it's framed out of a book. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's called How People Change by a guy named uh, Lane and another guy named Tripp. But in writing about it, they, they, they kind of talk about these different realities of how people change. And one of the ways I think people try to change is what I call Stuart Smalley change. You remember Stuart Smalley? Anybody remember him? Great. Nobody. I do. I just, I just dated myself. Stuart Smalley was a guy during the, I think, 80s and 90s, if I remember right, on Saturday Night Live. And he would always start out his broadcast on that saying, because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people what? 
love me. And that's how he would start all these different things. And there's this reality that was people try to change, especially those of us that grew up in the 70s and 80s. They were always telling us, you're good enough. You're smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. And then all of a sudden we live life and realize that's not true. (laughs) And so we go through life and we hear things like, believe in yourself. You're a good person. If you set your mind to it, you can accomplish it. In other words, the power to change is inside of you. And so we go out there, you know, like the, the idiots that we are, and we try to find the good in us. And the more and more we begin to find the good in us, actually what we find is what the Bible talks about is the inside of us is deadness. It's no wonder our culture in the United States that's tried to pe- tell people how wonderful they are is now, I think we're in the, we use 95% of the, and the psychotic drugs in the world, the drugs that affect our mind, we use them more than anybody. It's because it doesn't solve the core problem. My problem isn't that I need to tell myself that I'm good enough. The problem is I need someone to be honest with me and say, you are in trouble. What's inside of you is dead. The way Paul frames it in Ephesians 2 is you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And before we can seek God, before we can ever come to him, I I remember one time a Christian said that what our big problem is, you've got this hole in your heart that only God can fill. No, your hearts, all of us in here, our hearts are full, but it's full of junk. And what God wants to do is empty our hearts out and instead fill us with him. But I have to come to this point initially, which is so hard for our culture to do, is to go, I am desperate for you. If I don't have you, I am lost. And one of the hardest things in counseling oftentimes is to put the word of God in front of a person. or I mean, be honest with myself. The hardest thing for me to realize sometimes is to put the word of God in front of myself, to look in it and go, oh my gosh, I am desperate for a savior, especially when pride doesn't want me to do that. So that's Stuart Smalley change. The next one is the shoulda, coulda, woulda change. Shoulda, coulda, woulda change is, is, is probably the one that uh, we, we've heard often before. Uh, almost everyone I know acknowledges that they need to change, but here's some of the things that I've heard over the last month from people. I should stop blowing up at my wife. I need to be more patient with my kids. I should share my faith more. I should stop going to those internet sites. I shouldn't allow people to drive me crazy. See, at the core of that one is this reality that says inside of, inside of my head is that I need to substitute bad behavior with good behavior. If I could just somehow change my behavior, everything would be great. But the problem with this and the problem with our thinking around this is then what starts to happen is, is my wife and I aren't getting along. And so it's like, okay, we need to change our behavior. We need to come up with better communication skills. All we end up doing is then communicating better how much our heart needs to change. We don't communicate more effectively to help one another, or in fact, we might change behavior, but at the core of this one is, is not to change behavior, but to change the what? The heart. See, what God is after with all of us, and that was John's point, or Jesus' point when he's talking to Nicodemus, he doesn't want our external, he wants the inside because he knows once he has the captain of our ship, our heart, once he has that, he has all of us. That's what he's after. He doesn't just want us to change our behavior. In fact, oftentimes you'll see this in how we parent. My wife laughed at me this week. We went up to 
for a night. We went up to Pismo Beach and my kids weren't acting how I wanted them to do. And so I'm getting all frustrated and angry. And at the core of it, I wanted them to change their behavior. They're ruining my vacation. (sighs) I remember my wife looking at me. She goes, it's not about you, Todd. It's not about you either. (laughs) But what God is after is he's after our hearts. He's not into this weird, awkward, let go and let God. He wants us to join him, not changing our behavior, but coming before a holy God and saying, God, if I'm going to see change, you have to change my heart. The other one is hypothetical change. I think this is probably the one that I hear the most. If I was just better looking, I say that one to myself a lot. (laughs) If I was just thinner, (laughs) moment of confession with all of you. If I had more money, everything would be good, wouldn't it? If I was only married, if I only wasn't married. Oh, if we had kids. Oh, if we didn't have kids. It's all these hypothetical world in which we live in. The other way I sometimes hear it is, is you know what? If my kid wouldn't have been so awful, I wouldn't have blown up. At the core of this change, what the problem is, is that we tend to blame It's been our problem way back since Genesis 3 is that God puts them in a garden. They eat of a fruit they're told not to. And all of a sudden, God comes to man and he goes, why did you eat of it? And he goes, it's the woman you gave me, God. The woman goes, it's the snake. Instead of us being a group of people that own up and go, you're right, God, I'm deficient. Change me. God, you've brought these things into my life to show me my weakness. You've you've allowed me to go through trials so that I might increase my faith, that I might grow in who you are. God, you've done all these things for that particular purpose. We tend to then go instead, God, would you please rescue me out of this stuff? Would you get me out of it? And God is saying, no, I want you right there because that's how I grow you up. That's how I change you. That's how I make you different. The other one is what I call educational change. The other day I was watching a public service announcement, you know, and there's this like good-looking Hollywood guy that comes on and goes, you've probably heard about bullying. And you're sitting there going, yeah, and you probably bullied people, or you were bullied, that's why you're doing this. And it's like, and all of a sudden they walk through bullying, and at the end of it, this music starts just getting upbeat and uplifting, and suddenly you don't want to bully anymore. It's this thought inside of us, we think that if we can just educate people, people will change. And in our nation, we've spent millions on this. Somehow this idea is is that our thinking needs to be adjusted. And there's one part of it that's so true. If you read the Bible, and there's a good side to this, in Romans 12, 2, it says that we're to be renewed in our minds, that there is supposed to be a change in our thinking. But the problem with this is is that now all of a sudden, if you devoid that of Christ, if Christ isn't the one that's changing my thinking, now all of a sudden all I'm doing is living by the WWJD principle. I sit around and go, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? The problem is because my heart isn't changed, I never do what Jesus would do. Just because I'm thinking different doesn't somehow make me act different. 
And so then what we do, the problem is, is all these different approaches, we tend to then create a Jesus of our own thinking. For the first one I told you about, we create therapist Jesus. He's there to help me be okay with myself. Or we create life coach Jesus, who's there cheering me on. Go get him, Todd. Or we do genie Jesus, who rescues us from our circumstances and makes life easier. Or we do instructor Jesus, who's there with his, his hat on, telling me how in the world I'm supposed to think. And the, the problem of it is, is that those aren't the accurate views of Jesus. And what Jesus does with Nicodemus is he comes in and he gives Nicodemus an accurate picture of who he is and who Nicodemus is. See, at the core is, if you want to change, one of the things that you have to own up on is that you live in a world that's bent by sin and so are you. Everybody in here has to acknowledge that. The second thing we have to acknowledge is is that God truly wants to change us. He wants to make us different. It's, It's part of everything that he's seeking to do on this planet. It's part of his plan. He's not just now saving us and leaving us here kind of till he comes back, but within it, he wants to bring out the character of Christ in every single one of us. If you're somebody in here that doesn't know Jesus, what God wants to do is grab your life and make you different, not in the way the world makes you different, but instead now to live your life differently, being changed and transformed to be made to look like this Jesus that everybody wants to know. And so therefore, inside of us, what we have to do is we have to then develop out an accurate picture of who Jesus is and and who we are. And then we have to beg God, God, would you do this in my life because I can't do it. And that means, like we talked about last week, for some of us, we have to repent from where we've come from. And we need to now also then beg God, God, where do you want to go with this? And so John is riding along, the Apostle John, and he's going to now give us an illustration of verse 21. But look at verse 21 real quick. Before I give you the illustration, he says this. But whoever does what is true, the the reality of who God is, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, the person that truly wants to live in truth says, bring me into the light because I want people to see incredible the incredibleness of who God is. That's what I want my life to be about. At the bottom end of this is, is if you are a follower of Jesus, the compelling reality of your heart is, is that you would make Jesus look good. That in the end of it, your sin, your failure would be all about how Jesus came in and rescued you. Anything that comes out of you that's good, you'd be like Paul and says, look, I was created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before and that I would walk in. Your life just becomes about telling people how phenomenal God is. But first what he's going to do is he's going to then give us an example of, okay, so how does this work its way out? And that begins in verse 22. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, how does that have to do with change? What he's doing now is he's going to set the stage for us. He's given us verse 21, but he also, in one way, he's got to get us from point A to point B, help us understand where we are in this story. But he's got to set up the tension now of what's going on inside of these different people. See, on one end, 
he says, after these things, in other words, after Nicodemus, after turning the water in, or into wine, after the temple, all those different things, he says now they begin to move in a direction. And the directions that are beginning to move, you can see this, is that Jesus Christ is moving out and he's finding water because he wants to, number one, have some time with his disciples, but number two, he wants to add followers to him. Well, at the same time, it talks about John is also doing that. And in verse 25, it says, A discussion arose between some of John's apostles and a Jew over purification. Now, we don't know what this was all about, but finally, John's apostles come to him and they said, and they came to John and said to him, verse 26, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, here it begins to reveal their heart. They used to be chilling with John. Have you ever hung out with like the, the person that's the most popular person in your school? You remember that when you were then? Maybe you were it. I wasn't. Again, confession time. I wasn't that guy. But you're hanging around with the coolest guy in school. And all of a sudden, somebody cooler comes along. But you fight for your friend to be the coolest because when he's cool, what? You're cool. And so someone comes in, and we don't exactly know what it was they were talking about. It starts off at purification, but at the bottom end of it, there must have been moving towards this reality that, hmm, Jesus is getting more people. And they're like, no, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. And a fight begins to go, and all of a sudden, it's almost like when you're a kid, and you said, my dad is stronger than your dad. No, he's not. Yes, he is. And you go to your dad and go, are you stronger than so-and-so? And your dad looks at you like, Sure. But they come up to him and say, tell us, what's going on here? And what they wanted to know is a very human reaction, a very big reality, is that in our society, and, and even at that particular time, in order to measure ourselves against other and others in the position of ourselves, what we'd do is we'd always put ourselves next to the stronger to survive. In other words, these men's hearts are being revealed. They weren't hanging around with John, maybe necessarily, because they wanted to see him do amazing things. They were hanging around John because of what he would give them. And here's John confronted with what he's going to do. And look what John does in verse 28. Verse 27, excuse me. John answered and said, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I just love this moment because if you can imagine, here's a few different guys that are following John around him and they're like, tell us you're incredible. Please. And he looks at them, and it must have just shocked them how humble he was. This is why I love John, is he knew why he was here on this globe. And let me just give you one point on how it is that you can become a person that God does a change in you. If you want to be changed, you need to understand why you're on this planet. Once you understand why you're on this planet, everything changes. 
He knew that everyone that had come to him and everyone that went to Jesus the way he designed it, that's why he talks about, look, no one comes to me unless he brings them. He just has this idea. And once again, he reminds them, look at me. It's not about me. I've told you this. I'm just a voice. My job was to go gather people, and I know for a while I looked great. And everybody was coming to me, and they were, being, they were, they were changed because of the work that I was doing. But what he's going to do here that is so key is he's going to remind the guys, that's not my mission. And far from upsetting him, he just begins to look at them and say, yeah, this is the natural progression. This is how it was supposed to happen. See, the test of a minister is not how many people follow him, but the test of a minister is how many people follow Jesus. The test of good parenting is not how many kids follow you, but if your kids follow Jesus. The test of all these different things has nothing to do with us is what he's talking about. At the end of it, he says, it's not about me. It's about the Christ, the Messiah. And I can just see those guys sitting around and going, what? And when he says a person cannot receive one thing, he, in other words, he says, we cannot receive a person. I cannot receive a throng unless God brings it to him. He's, he's going back and he's connecting us back again to verse 21, this idea that these works are carried out in God. I have nothing to do with it. God brings them to me, but if God brings them to me, you know, he's going to take them away. You wonder why people are turning away from me, he's saying to them? Because they found someone greater. That's why. He says, this is why I was sent for it, man. I gathered all these people, and like a star, I rose in the wilderness. But let me tell you something. I can sense it like a meteor. I'm crashing. But he was going to go out with a big light. God sent him for this. That's the plan, and John knows it. Let me ask you all a question. Why are you on this planet? Why? See, once you answer that question, why you're on this planet, then when things get taken away from you or things are given to you, it doesn't phase you because you understand why you're here. See, people, the reason that we get upset all the time is because we forget why we're on this planet. And for John, it must have been a hugely liberating view. It wasn't fatalistic as if somehow it's just going off into oblivion. But he's looking at these guys going, that's why I'm here. Some are going to come, but you know what? They're all hopefully going to go to him. And I love how he does it in verse 29. He grabs a story and just starts talking about a wedding. I found this quote in one of the guys that I was reading and talking about this wedding. It says, the friend of the bridegroom was called the Shushben. I love that. Shushben. And he had a unique place at a wedding, Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the groom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the groom together. And on the wedding day, he had one special duty. It was the duty to guard the bridal chamber and to not let a false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the groom's voice and recognized it. And when he heard the groom's voice, he was glad and he let him in and he went away rejoicing because finally his task was done. John is just saying, I'm the, in our culture, I'm the best man. That's who I am. I'll never forget the first wedding I was ever in. It was my best friend from college and, and, and 
my job was to, you know, be the best man. And I didn't understand what a best man did. And, but yet I kind of learned what a best man did, which in our culture isn't a whole lot, but I tried to do it out. And so I threw him a bachelor party and it was probably one of the most boring bachelor parties ever. And, but I remember finally we get to the wedding day and I remember setting up things and putting together things and trying to make sure everything was together so that it didn't fall back on the wedding couple. And finally the wedding kind of gets there and everybody's walking down the aisle and I'm standing next to my friend in a weird way, I couldn't wait to see his bride. I was so excited. And he looked over at me, and he's a guy that we always, we, we, we shared a lot of life, but I just remember looking at him and sweat pouring down his face. And I couldn't tell if it was tears or sweat, but I knew this was a big moment in his life. I remember laughing I remember just seeing him. I remember getting caught up in the moment. And all of a sudden, the door swung open, and there was his wife at the end of the aisle. And I remember him. He was six foot, he's about six foot 10, six foot 11. And I remember him just suddenly getting smaller. (laughs) And I saw that sheepish little boy grin come across his face. And I saw her down the aisle, and I saw tears kind of come into her face. And I see her dad, and he has her, and he's walking her down the aisle. I remember she finally gets there, and I think she's only like 5'2", so 5'2", 6'10", okay? And she gets up on stage, and I remember her getting up there, and he's just huge, and she's tiny, and I'm just sitting there the whole time watching this thing blown away because the initial part of this wedding thing was me getting things ramrodded and all together, and all of a sudden, in one moment, it was not about Todd. And can you imagine if in the middle of the ceremony I said, hey, stop, I'd like to make this about me again. Have I told you a joke? I mean, it would have been so weird. But instead, what happened from that moment that she came in, the rest of us just kind of drifted off into the background. I remember that he said their vows, and finally, you may kiss your bride. And he leaned way over and kissed his bride and leaned way back up. And then we went off to the wedding feast and everyone was excited. And at the end of the night, you know what my job was? Picking up trash. Because it wasn't about me. And John is looking at these guys that are falling and saying, it's not about you. It's not about me. And we don't find our joy in life when we somehow try to come in and make it about us. I mean, think about it. Everybody in the world thinks the world revolves around them. This thing that is spread across the universe at at millions and billions and billions of light years across. And we have the audacity to say it's about me. In fact, the greatest joy we can find is when we finally get to the point where we realize it's not about me and I get consumed in the reality of who it's really about. This is what he's doing. And he wants people to get this accurate picture of who he was and he gives us this idea at the very end. He said, therefore, this joy of mine is complete. And why is it complete, John? Verse 30, because he must increase, but I must decrease. That's what it's about. Every one of you in this room were written into this amazing thing that God is doing on this planet. But let me tell you something. You are not the main character. Jesus is. At the end of the credits, nobody's going to sit there and wait to go, where's your name in this whole thing? 
Because at the end of it, it's just going to say, Jesus. And the reason that John could say he must increase and I must decrease is, is that as I blend off and as I become this one that, that goes off and he becomes greater, I have this reality that that one who's becoming greater, John 3.16, loves me. And as he gets greater and his love begins to capture me and own me and know me, it doesn't matter about me because the king of the universe loves me. I don't have to find self-love. I don't have to find a coach. I don't have to find all these things because the reason that I want him to increase and me to decrease is because the one that loves me, I need him to. That's where my joy is made full and complete. And we live in a world that tries so hard to not decrease and God is looking at us going, would you just let Jesus be big? Would you find full joy in Jesus being that? I love you. I care for you. Let him get big. That means in our homes, at our workplace, at everything, you don't have to struggle and strive and strain to be big. Jesus is big enough. Your job is just let people see him. And then he's going to fill out this idea of who Jesus is in verse 31. He says, he, that being Jesus, who comes from above, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from a heaven is above all. It's almost like you didn't get it, but this one who comes from above, he's above all. He holds the whole world in his hands. He's got the little bitty baby in his hands. It's just this thing in which literally the point is, he's got it. You've come from earth. Every one of us has come from earth. John the Baptist, boy, I'll tell you what, he had to put on his pants just like us. One, well, I guess his robe, two feet at a time, whatever he wore. That illustration didn't work. But it's just this thing where he is just as human as we are. But the one who's not like us is Jesus. He is above all. Look what he says in verse 32. Not as he, only is he above all, not only is he having these, these heavenly origins, But he knows the truth firsthand. Verse 33, verse 32, I mean, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives him. He's talking about this reality that he has truly been with the Father. He's not giving us secondhand information like all the prophets were. I'm giving you secondhand information from the Word. The idea is literally he's above all because he has literally been in heaven. He's been there. He's been with the Father. He's been with the Spirit. He's not coming down and giving us secondhand anything. He is above us. Verse 34, verse 33. And whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is is true. In a world that lies to us and is devious, there's one, per, there's one being in all of the universe that is true all the time. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure to this one. The father, look at this, loves the son and has given all things into his hand. In other words, what he's saying is, is we can trust him. But look how he finishes, and this is really key. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever sees Jesus for who he is, whoever sees him as excellent and above all things, and he has me and he loves me, 
that particular one, that is the ones that will receive eternal life. See, that's why I want to teach the book of John. It's all about the story of you seeing how excellent and awesome Jesus Christ is. My passion is is that everyone in here would start to get a glimpse of him so that we might have this eternal life. And my great fear is the next part of it. Whoever does not obey the Son, whoever does not submit to him, whoever does not trust the Son, shall not see life. But, look at this, the wrath of God remains on him. See, this is the dividing line for everything. Do you see Jesus for who he is? Do you see how incredible he is? Do you see that he's above all? Do you see he has all things in his hands? Do you see that he loves you and is passionate for you? Do you see his excellence and his worth? Because if you don't, the reality then might be that you've never been one who submitted to him, that knows him, that walks with him. And the reality of that is then the wrath of God remains on you. Jesus came here on a rescue mission that we might have life. You don't know him. And the wrath of the God that created stars that burn at 250,000 degrees Fahrenheit, that created this entire cosmos with power like we don't even understand. If you don't believe in him in the end, God's wrath will stay upon you. As a pastor, this is my heart. The reason I want people to see Jesus, and the problem is, is I can scream and yell and be, do all these things. I could do a dance for you. But in the end of it, I know that God's got to do a work in your heart. My job is just to be faithful and to tell all of you, this one Jesus is amazing. If you're someone here today that doesn't know him, I'm begging God that you do today. If you're someone in here that claims to know him, but yet you've not lived a life, anything for him, you don't want to come into the light, you'd You've struggled in and out of sin. I'm telling you, today's the day Jesus wants to do a work in your life. For those of you that see his worth, Jesus now wants to do a work in us that we can now go display him well to a world. I was trying to think how to end this. I think the best way to end it is just by rereading verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Father, would you make Jesus beautiful to everyone here? God, I can't do it. I pray the words that I've spoken today in some way reflect your heart. God, if there's people in here that are in sin, that maybe they do claim to know you, but boy, Father, their life isn't showing it, that today they would deal with it. God, I don't know if they're truly a follower of yours or not, but I do not want your wrath to rest on them. So would you please move in the hearts and lives of those that don't know you, those that are maybe confused about you, 
But God, would you give Cornerstone Church an exalted vision of Jesus? Would you allow Jesus to become so big and so awesome that we feel so small and we love it? That we would know that as you are enlarged, your love captures us and has us. That we don't have to fear it, but instead we can embrace it. God, do a work, please, in your precious name. Amen.